Hello and welcome to People, Places, Power with me, Nick Cull. And with me, Simon Anhold. In this podcast, we talk about issues of foreign policy, international reputation and a few other things along the way. And today we're talking about language and the advantages in terms of reputation or soft power that come from having an especially well-known language uh, on the world stage. So I guess the way to start this, Simon, is by um, addressing a, a complaint that comes sometimes to the Nation Brands Index that the index favours uh, English-speaking countries, and that there's some kind of uh, something unfair in the index to make the uh, countries that happen to speak English seem to be more admirable in, in the world. Uh, are you controlling for uh, some kind of English advantage, or do you think it's really there in um, uh, the eyes of international publics? Well, it's it's kind of an absurd allegation, not least because the most admired country in the world is not English-speaking, it's German-speaking because it's Germany. Um, So on average, overall, globally, across all of our samples, which, by the way, is not predominantly English-speaking, and by the way, of course, we do also, um, we submit questionnaires in the language of the respondents, so that there aren't aren't any intrinsic bias, English-language biases in the way that the, the study is run. But um, the, the, the fact that a, a, a number of English-speaking countries do rather well uh, simply reflects the reality that quite a lot of um, successful, popular, wealthy uh, countries uh, are also English-speaking. Um, so the, there's nothing funny going on there. It's, it's just that you've got the UK, you've got the USA, and you've got Australia and New Zealand and Canada and uh, South Africa, and those are English-speaking countries, and they are also admired, successful, and on the whole, uh, prosperous countries. So um, in any sort of advantage that English might seem to, um, to, to give to countries in the Nation Brands Index is something that's there in the world around us. The NBI mm-hmm. just reflects it. So do you also see a disproportionate advantage to other countries that have uh, an international language. So I guess France, Spain, uh, how, how do they fare? Well, um, I, I don't see any evidence. Uh, it would be very hard to, tra- to trace it back. It would be very hard to ascribe a high ranking in the Nation Brands Index to something as, um, as ephemeral as uh, an internationally known language. But it doesn't look as if that's the case. I mean, Spanish, as we know, is spoken by an enormous number of people worldwide. Spain is no higher than you would expect it to be in the Nation Brands Index uh, for a successful, modern, prosperous, attractive Western European country. Um, It doesn't score, for example, any better than Italy, um, really. And uh, Italian is not an international language. So... The suggestion is it doesn't give you an advantage having an international language in terms of immediate measurements of the reputation of your country. It does give other advantages, of course, over time. It makes trade easier. Um, It it means that people are more likely to have a sense of who you are as a a people, as a nation. Um, But I don't don't think it has a direct impact on, on a country's ranking in the NBI. 
In, in fact, um, the rankings seem to indicate the opposite. As you were saying, Germany is the, in recent years at least, has been the perennial uh, top uh, of the table. Uh, mm. Italy always does well. Japan always does well. And, and these are not countries whose language is um, uh, especially well known. They don't have um, sort of uh, a, 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 an, uh, a linguistic diaspora in quite the same way that the UK or, or France mm. uh, can, can, can look to um, uh, former colonies that sp- still uh, keep the language going. Yes, absolutely right, and 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 by and by contrast, uh, China doesn't rank especially high in the Nation Brands Index, and yet Mandarin is one of the most widely spoken um, languages on the planet. Um, so uh, correlation not not obvious, um, if if existent at all. Well, do you think then that there there could be a um, a sort of a false correlation then, a kind of assumption that whoever's at number one. Uh, with a well-known language, has some special power that needs to be assailed if you are fed up with being number two. Uh, I'm thinking here about the um, uh, Chinese government's avowed goal of maximizing the number of Mandarin speakers in the world Mm. and uh, seeking to establish Mandarin as a go-to international language uh, in a relatively short uh, period of time, the tremendous investments that have been made in the Confucius Institutes uh, a- a- around the world. Um, what do you yeah. make of that? Well, I, one can one can quite see why they would want to do it, and there's there's no doubt that the prize is a prize worth having to have a language, um, a, a national language like English, which is spoken by hundreds of millions of people around the world, um, non-native speakers. I mean. Um, because of course, the, the, the only reason why there are so many speakers of of, uh, of Chinese is because there are so many Chinese nationals um, and, uh, and and Chinese diaspora of the first and second generation. Um, so you can see why they would want that. It's a great thing to have. But I think the argument, or rather the relationship between cause and effect, is rather dubious. You can't mm-hmm. people want to learn a language unless they're already interested in the country and the culture behind it. The only reason why somebody would take the trouble um, to 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 go to the trouble of learning, especially a difficult language like Mandarin, um, is because is because the the magic has already worked on them, and they're already keen on Chinese culture, Chinese history, Chinese tourism, um, or they need it for business or something of that sort. So I don't think you start by making people want to learn your language because they don't want to learn your language unless they already admire you. So it's not the starting place to earn a stronger national reputation. It's something that happens if you've got a stronger national reputation. Um, the, the, the best example of that is, or one of the best examples is certainly Italy. So many millions of people around the world doing evening courses in Italian, wanting to learn Italian simply because they admire Italy the country, the culture, the cuisine, the people, the, the, the literature and all the rest of it, even though technically speaking, it's not a very useful language. Um, you, you, know, you can get by reasonably well uh, in Italy without very much Italian, and there are certainly no other countries where it's essential. So um, I, I think uh, the, the language learning point is uh, effect rather than cause. 
It's mm-hmm. one of the things that happens if you're admired. It's not a thing that you do to make yourself admired. It does seem to be, though, uh, a thing that uh, countries worry about uh, or that populations worry about. And I know, you know, as a historian looking at the origins of what we would now call cultural diplomacy, um, that, that clearly begins with attempts by the European countries to make sure that their language is spoken by the next generation of expats uh, in places around the world, uh, that foreigners have an opportunity to learn the language. And, and there's also a kind of a linguistic Olympics going on where uh, a uh, when if a foreigner starts to learn German, that's a defeat for France and, yes. and vice versa. Um, uh, so I, I, I think that there, there are issues of national prestige in the perception of government uh, tied into uh, who's learning the language. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the other thing that I think comes up around Confucius Institutes, and it goes to what you were saying about people have to have a reason to l- learn the language, is that the Confucius Institutes seem very clearly to aim for... Um, or to, to be of value to uh, diaspora groups. Mm. So people who are ethnically Chinese are much more likely to be interested in learning the language effectively because it's a, a part, it's already part of their uh, identity, part mm. of their personal history. And uh, Confucius has provided a, uh, a mechanism for, um, for for acquiring the the, the skill uh, that they need, uh, I, I know in the United States that uh, the Confucius Institute Network uh, validates teaching of Mandarin, uh, runs the um, exams to make sure people are at the right the right standard. So there's a whole bureaucracy of language education administered through uh, Confucius and its and its. Um, uh, and its Chinese government support structure, mm. which I think is very interesting because uh, the way that it's sold often is, oh, teach the world to speak Mandarin, not uh, teach people who are ethnically Chinese to have a better command of Mandarin. Mm. Uh, it's a slightly different um, process, but still you know, in, in, interesting that it's a priority. Yes, I, I think we're in a point in history where the potential uh, to teach large numbers of ethnic Chinese um, citizens in America is greater than it has been in the past. Because traditionally, as we all know, of course, the model in the United States has been the melting pot. And the last thing that most um, uh, second or third generation um, migrants wanted to do was to be good at their original language. Um Indeed, it was a, a badge of honor if you were a second-generation Italian not to be able to speak a word of Italian. Wanting, yes. to in, wanting to be part of the melting pot meant not having a foreign language. And having a foreign language was considered to be um, uh, uh, perhaps, uh, it's not much of an exaggeration to say, it indicated that you were a second-class citizen. But that mm-hmm. now in the, in the age of identity wars is beginning to change. And now, and this is a good thing, I think, more and more American people um, are starting to uh, self-identify quite noisily as coming from mm-hmm. the group that they come from. And with that, presumably, is also a desire to start learning the language of one's parents or grandparents. So things are, things are beginning to change, I think. Yeah, this is one of the, in the, in the 
the his, the history of um, diaspora or diaspora studies in the United States, there's a saying uh, from a historian called Hansen that uh, the things that the son worked to forget, the grandson works to remember. Yes, and right. there is a. <laughs> Despite the sexism of that, there is something there is something true there. Uh, that there is that sort of dynamic of trying to recover um, your identity, and I think language is an important part of uh, that. And um, but uh, you know when those sorts of remarks were being made in the 1930s, um, national governments weren't necessarily intervening in the process. Now you see a national government like the Chinese government working to consolidate its diaspora through um, linguistic uh, programs and yes. linguistic outreach. And, and, and of course, language is always there. It's always in the, in the air when uh, nationalistic themes are being discussed and being pursued, because being able to speak the language of your nation is the one thing that the vast majority of citizens have. And it's a point of pride, and it's a point of pride that nationalist politicians um, can can leverage and, and utilize quite strongly. We were speaking uh, in an earlier episode um, about the, um, the 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 decision on the on the part of uh, the Turkish government to to mandate calling Turkey Turkey in the Turkish language. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a reflection of the same thing. A nationalist leader will always get points by declaring in front of the population that uh, his or her aim is to protect and reinforce and defend the language, the precious language, because that's the one cultural asset that everybody has and shares, no matter how educated they are or not. Um, and, and although that's, if you like, the, 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 the ugly face of it, on the whole, just for the record, I rather approve of all of this. I think it's a good thing if efforts are made uh, to keep national languages alive and distinct. And I think it is a good thing if countries and governments fight against the tendency uh, for languages to kind of splurge and merge together and become um, less distinct from each other. Because I think we lose something when we lose a language, no question about mm -hmm. it. And luckily, uh, human beings you... have got the capacity to retain three or four languages in their head at the same time. But if we look at the way in which this plays out in cultural politics, uh, I think even maybe even more than than China, certainly historically more than China, this is a concern of France. Mm, and uh, uh, so I think maybe we should pay some some attention to the French strategies of keeping the language alive, mm. uh, actually organizing around it with the francophonie. Um, and, and the, the, the rules that force people to speak the purest French imaginable, limiting the amount of English people can use, trying to ban terms like le weekend and so forth. Yeah, it's a, a constant yes, and pointless uh, struggle. I, I, the, uh, it's an interesting contrast with the way French is spoken in, um, in, in Quebec. Uh, mm. Where they 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 throw up some wonderful compound words. The the one that I like recently I heard was that the in Quebec they call it a selfie and ego portrait. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great word for a selfie. But I think um, that, I think that proves a very important point that uh, you don't have to be boring about this stuff. And in defence of a language, uh, if you're smart about it, you can end up being quite creative. And if language isn't a isn't a joyful process, you're getting something wrong. 
So do you, do you think the French government is right to be so obsessed with issues around language and uh, or, or, or doth they protest too much? I th- well, I, in the past, they've certainly uh, protested far too much. Um, and a great many of the efforts that have been made in the past to try and preserve the purity of the French language um, are a little bit like the legend of the English king Canute, who tried to uh, force the yes. tide to retreat um, by sitting on the beach and swearing at it. Um, the reality of the matter is that... Not quite, but I don't want to get into the defence of King Canute, but it's a useful a useful metaphor. <laughs> Perhaps my old high Danish has misunderstood his language. <laughs> um, the, 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 the point, however, being that uh, there's very little you can do um, to persuade people to speak the way that they want to speak. Um, and in, in many ways, the, way, the ways in which languages change and develop is really very democratic. Um, people tend to opt for what works for them, and that's how languages work, and that's how, they, and that's how they develop. And to try to resist that process, which is so natural to, to the human race, um, is generally speaking a waste of time, effort, and money. But the principle behind it is not a bad one, the principle of trying to um, preserve um, some cultural difference and some cultural values without shutting out what's new and modern and useful. And it's a very difficult balancing trick to perform. But, uh, but I think, um, uh, you know, generally speaking, the, 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 the principle behind it is not a bad one. But one shouldn't see language as being the source of the problem. Language is often, uh, is often a symptom of a, an underlying mm-hmm. oh, issue, yes, quite. Uh, which is that people are leading different lives and they're having to think different thoughts and they're having to converse with different people in different ways. And language has to change to keep pace with that changing reality. And if you've got government policy that tries to deny that need for people to keep pace with things, then you you end up um, simply being an an oppressive government. So do you think maybe the the English has been, because of its less rigid structure, uh, because of its more its history as a, as a as a hybrid language, um, a particularly hybrid language, mm. uh, it has been more um, suitable for global transmission um, than, than 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 French. That English turned out to be a better meme, if you like, than, than yes. the French language. Well, English is an awful lot easier to learn than French. I mean, French is a difficult language. I often say that the difference between learning English and the different and learning French is like the difference between learning the violin and learning the piano. English is like a piano. You don't need any particular technique to be able to hammer out a tune on a keyboard. The violin, on the other hand, you need an awful lot of technique right from the very start, even just to play one note without it sounding like a cat being strangled. Um, <laughs> uh, to, to, to master either instrument is equally difficult. Um, but, you know, one of the many advantages that English has had over the generations is the fact that it's got relatively little formal grammar to learn, an awful lot of idiomatic stuff, but it doesn't matter all that much if you get it wrong. All those phrasal yeah. verbs that are almost impossible for foreigners to learn, but you can communicate at a basic level in English after, uh, you know, an hour's instruction. With French, you, you're, you're nowhere after an hour's instruction. So they're, they're really very different propositions. And there's a lot of grammar to learn with French. And that's part of its mm-hmm. Well, one of the things I've noticed with French is that because of the demographic changes within France, because there are more new French people, more, more migrants into France, 
a different kind of French is spoken on the streets of Paris. And so, you know, when I'm walking around asking people for things, getting a COVID test, uh, it, you know, there's no eye rolling anymore uh, mm. at my schoolboy French. The, the, mm. And there's a lot of communication can happen uh, much more easily because French is becoming a, uh, even in the heart of um, Paris, uh, is becoming an, an international language, whether or not, uh, on international terms, whether or not the Académie Française wants it to be that way. Right, right. But French, French has all, French jargon, French argot has always been, or for for as long as I've been uh, known anything about the language, it has always been remarkably flexible and changeable, and and fascinating. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when I when I used to uh, go to France regularly. I would find that from one visit to another at a, a distance of a month or two, the Argo words that I'd painstakingly learned were no longer coming. <laughs> um, and people would laugh yeah. at me for saying, uh, you know, whatever. Um, I, I remember that the word for a party was a, a boom. And a boom, yes. <laughs> three months after learning this precious word, uh, I was being laughed <laughs> at for using it. And I think that's one of the rather marvelous things about French that it moves so quickly and forever onwards. And and yes, absolutely, yes. the influences from North Africa and beyond are a very important part of that. So, um, teaching English or teaching a language is one of the uh, techniques used by cultural agencies. So. Um, for many years, the British Council's stock in trade was being the place you could learn English. Mm. In fact, uh, famously during the Suez Crisis, um, uh, NASA had to provide English lessons uh, for the people who were enrolled at the British Council just so they wouldn't be angry with him. Mm. Uh, they were so well placed within Egyptian society. So this has been a, a, one of the most valued things the British Council um, uh, does uh, what do you make of 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 that? Is it do you see that as still being a government uh, mandate going forward, or are we being uh, um, uh, superseded by websites and um, uh, or what do you, what do you call that that uh, um, Rosetta Stone? Uh, mm computer programs. Yes. Well, I mean, it's always been a struggle, hasn't it? And the, and the British Council um, has, has, has grappled forever, really, with this dual role, um, that on the one hand, it, it is, um, it is a, although, albeit at arm's length, a government instrument of soft power. On the other hand, it's a business um, making quite a lot of its revenues from, um, uh, from selling the English language. Um, but as a, as a soft power instrument, that is very important to try to maintain at least some sense um, that uh, the United Kingdom uh, is one of the homes of the English language. And that's a product that everybody wants. And the more it is attached in people's minds with Great Britain, the better that is for Great Britain. Um, but that's a, that's a constant struggle because for a very long time now, English has not been the language of England. Uh, or even necessarily the language of America. It's just the operating system of globalization. You know, it's the it's the mm -hmm. windows of the world. And I don't think anybody thinks of it as being the language of England anymore. Um, in fact, British English is, uh, if anything, one of the obscure variants, an obscure local variant 
of international standard English. And that's still greatly to Britain's advantage that you know, it's part of our stock in trade. It's part of what we can, uh, what we can offer, what we can share with people. Um, but but no, no longer can we or should we claim that it's in any sense our own um, because it's flourished in so many other places and become so many other useful things in the meantime. It's the, uh, the U.S. government or the State Department has recently, recently, last, last uh, 15 years or so, um, repositioned its English language teaching away from helping people develop truly excellent English uh, mm. to what they call access English. Right. So making micro-scholarships available that can help a large number of people who would otherwise have no access to the English language learn enough English to be able to read a newspaper or read a website or get a job uh, as it was put to me at the Intercontinental Hotel, so that they could have a shot at moving out of a socially vulnerable position. Mm. And of course, the motivation for this was um, uh, using English as a tool to counter uh, r- radicalization. Yeah. And uh, there was a theory that if somebody could speak a little English, then they wouldn't need to get all their information in life from jihadis. And um, that seems to have been quite a successful uh, program, a successful enough model that it, it began in North Africa and is now, uh, I think, quite widely used by, by American um, embassies. Yes. Well, it makes sense. There was a wonderful moment in the 60s when uh, the, the U.S. realized that the English language was strategically useful when um, the Russians started teaching English uh, in Latin America uh, because they realized nobody wanted to learn Russian uh, in the 1960s in Latin America. So they thought, well, we might as well teach people English and then at least we can teach them English with the right kind of uh, political emphasis. But, you know, that gets me onto the question of Russia and what can we expect right now, given the um, politics around Russia, Russian nationalism, Russian activity in, in, in Ukraine, Russia's war in Ukraine? What do you think? Do you think people will still want to learn the Russian language uh, in these circumstances? Will they be more drawn to it as a, uh, uh, given the level of, of, of interest? in Russian behavior, or will they be repelled by it? What, what do you expect? And are there any precedents here? Well, I, it's, obviously, um, it's obviously quite a major commitment deciding to learn a foreign language, whether it's for business or social or purely intellectual purposes. And it's difficult to imagine that very many people would want to take on that commitment for Russia at the moment, for Russian. Because, you know, one of the questions they would ask themselves is how useful is this language going to be to me? And of course, there'll be a small number of people who probably quite rightly say there will be a need for people who um, speak Russian well. And if you want to be one of those people, that's probably not a bad thing. And the fact that Russia is in conflict with most of the West at the moment uh, doesn't make it any less valuable to know Russian. In some respects, it makes it more valuable. But the vast majority will just say nobody's going to want to do business with Russia. Nobody's going to want to go on holiday to Russia. The, the majority of Russians, whether commercially or culturally or socially, are going to be pariahs for the foreseeable future. There's therefore no business, no utility in speaking their language. Um, 
Now, again, uh, as we were saying before, it's important not to muddle cause and effect. One of the consequences of the political decisions um, that Vladimir Putin has made is that he's also destroyed the Russian language as a viable product um, for the foreseeable future. Nobody's going to want to learn the language. Um, I don't know how big a product that was, but there were presumably language schools teaching Russian in more than a handful of countries. Um, and I think they will probably now find that, um, that they don't have much business anymore. And that's likely to remain the case for, for some little while to come. Well, one of the differences between the presence of Russia in the world, the presence of China, was that people, um, a lot of people wanted to study in, in, in Russia. Mm. Uh, especially people from the former uh, from former Soviet countries, but not mm. exclusively. There was a sort of a net inflow of students into mm. um, into, into uh, Russian um, educational institutions, and it will be interesting to see what happens going going forward. Um, I, I've heard that people who are associated with international exchange in Russia, that is Russians who've been Fulbright fellows and have, have been the connective tissue between Russia and the universities of the world, are finding it suddenly very difficult and that their uh, connections are, shall we say, not politically fashionable. Mm. Um, so uh, it, it's, it's a situation to watch. Um, the, the final thing that I, I wanted to talk about is whether... You know, we're talking about languages here as complex systems of understanding where you've spent years studying the thing and uh, are, are fully absorbed in the language. But at some level, a language can operate kind of as a symbol, uh, almost uh, like a, a, an extension of a, of a uh, to use the horrible word, brand uh, or, or, or part of a um, a. a uh, a, it can have a symbolic value, even if you don't speak it. Do you see that working in the world? I mean, the way that it, uh, a uh, cartouche of Egyptian hieroglyphics is instantly recognizable and has a mm. kind of um, uh, set of feelings as associated with it. What would be the equivalence today of uh, where, where uh, uh, even if you don't know the language, you recognize the connection? Yes, well, there, there, there are languages which are easy to recognize, even if you don't speak or understand a word of them. Um, Italian, which we mentioned before, is one, uh, just because of the way that um, Italian um, uh, morphology works, the morphology of the language, those suffixes, elo, eto, ino, they're instantly recognizable and, and, and unmistakable. And so even somebody who knows the word ciao and that's it, will be able to recognize a piece of Italian, whether spoken or written, almost immediately. And that's an asset. It's, it's a lucky asset. Uh, it's an asset for Italy because it means that Italian products from the marketplace are instantly recognizable as Italian, indeed, as are fake Italian products that are given fake Italian names. Both you and I have written in the past about these, uh, these um, uh, what, I, what I've occasionally called cuckoo brands, um, yes. that pretend to be of another nationality. So that's a great asset. Uh, Chinese is the same. Everybody knows what Chinese sounds like or thinks they know what it sounds like without speaking a word of it. Japanese is the same. And there are one or two others around the place um, that, are, that are immediately recognizable. And there are many not. Um, and life is a little bit harder for the ones that are not immediately recognizable because you have to explain to people where the damn product comes from. Um, but if the mere sound of the name tells them where it comes from, 
um, then you know you skipped a rung on the ladder uh, on the way up to uh, commercial success. But as I say, that's just the luck of the draw. If you happen to have a language mm-hmm. of that sort, that's that's instantly recognisable. I suppose the other the other point here that's that's worth just mentioning in the brief time we've got left is the role of technology. Um, what we in the old days uh, used to call machine translation, rather comically, and is still called that in scientific circles. In other words, Google Translate has become so vastly more capable, so much sooner than we anticipated. Um, it is almost now, at least in the written language, pretty much good enough. Um, and so if, for example, you're a real estate agent and you want to publish the details of the property that you're selling in six languages simultaneously, it's free, it's instant, and it's perfectly workable. And so it's now almost unthinkable that in a few more years, uh, we will still need human language skills for ordinary business. And so what will that do? This this burden, this commitment that we've spoken of earlier, the the amount of work and effort it requires to learn another language, all of that will recede into insignificance very, very soon. Well, hopefully people will realize that the kind of mental discipline required to learn a language, the self-examination that comes from having to see the world in a different set of, uh, through a different set of language rules, that those have uh, tremendous value, <laughs> irrespective of whether or not you actually go out and use it to communicate um, with people, and that um, the, the 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 skill of language learning will be, will remain uh, a, um, a part of a liberal arts education. <laughs> well, I, I certainly, uh, I certainly um, uh, hope hope so. Hope so. Uh, it, it's horribly utilitarian to think that that's the only language, the only reason to learn a language is so you can go and sell something to somebody. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's a very big danger here that as uh, as translation and interpreting software becomes uh, instant, reliable, and free, um, the inducement for people to start having any understanding of the culture that they're dealing with begins to to diminish. Right. Um, and then we're really in trouble because if people think that all you need is to push a button on your Babelfish in order to be able to communicate perfectly with somebody from any other country on earth, they're in for a rude awakening. So you never know. I well, mean, as you, as you, Simon, as you know, as a parent, sometimes knowing all the words doesn't mean you necessarily understand exactly the nuance of what's right. going on. <laughs> well, that's all we have time for this week. Thanks so much for listening. I'm still Nick Cole. I'm still Simon Anhold. <laughs>